Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Ruth. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Thanks, Joe. If you guys have your Bibles, turn to Ruth chapter 2. going to start back in chapter 1, verse 19, catching up, but we'll, for the majority of the time, we'll be in chapter 2. I want to start out and show you a couple pictures this morning. Any artists in the room? Art history majors? Everybody's like, no, I need to make some money in my life, so I can't be an art history major. Um, this is thought to be one of the, the greatest works of art ever uh, by da Vinci. It's called The, the Fetus in the Womb. It depicts, you know, the, the miracle, um, the greatest work of art in God's creation of humanity and, and preserving and protecting in the mother's womb, in the shell of a... Um, a chestnut, as it's depicted. Um, really great work. This is Rembrandt, getting a little bit closer to my uh, neck of the woods, my heritage, Dutch artist. Uh, this, is, this is a self-portrait of Rem- Rembrandt with two circles in the background, and that's exactly what it's called. Everybody who studies art likes to look at the works of Rembrandt and try to figure him out. What was he thinking when he did this painting? What was the experiences that he brings to the table in any of his works? The interesting thing about this painting itself is that uh, we're not the ones examining Rembrandt. Rembrandt is the one examining us. He looks at you when you're looking at him. He's examining you almost like a, a godlike figure, peering into your heart and soul, wondering what you're thinking about him and his work. Here's a, maybe one that's a little bit more Common, more famous to you, Starry Night. Uh, this is Van Gogh's work as he was recovering from his amputated ear in a mental hospital. Bars of this window were facing as he overlooked and, and did this work. And, and people have wondered exactly what Van Gogh was thinking. And with the, the use of light, a cypress tree on the left almost looks like a, a cathedral or a church steeple. How did that factor into to his life and to his work? Just, just wonderful, wonderful works of art. And as I get a little bit older, I've come to appreciate art a lot more than I, than I did previously. Of course, in the last 250 years or so, we've seen quite a bit of change in art. Uh, art today is, is very abstract. It doesn't seem to resolve or, or revolve around anything. There's there's colors, there's shapes, there's sizes, and you're, you're sort of left to your imagination on uh, what it means to you personally. There's no direct way to interpret these works. They're just, they're just there. Uh, my kids could have done this painting with a compass and some watercolors, and yet it's something that you would pay a lot of money to go see at an art show or a gallery. Ever hear the name Andy Warhol? He's a Great paintings and pieces of art done by Andy Warhol of uh, 1962. Campbell Soup Cans, this is called. 
real creative. Nobody really knows what's going on here. Is this about death or life or just my mind in general and what's all like in there, tucked away, categorized? Most people who study art will tell you that art developed from the world of religion. Actually, Charles Taylor, famous Canadian philosopher, says what we look back on as ancient art objects were in fact and function liturgical instruments. What he means is that art started as a way of peering into the the creativity and the greatness of our designer God. Art used to inspire and motivate worship. And therefore, most of the ancient and the most famous pieces of art celebrate God as creator, his handiwork in his life, and the the great pieces, the, the statues, the Sistine Chapel, and the paintings that you see are all very familiar to you because it was infused with the creator God, with an understanding of God. During the time of Christendom, belief in God was generally assumed. Whether you were looking at nature, God's creation, or a piece of art or a work of art, the world assumed a sense of God's mystery and presence in all things. It's only recently that our culture has adopted art as a cultural phenomenon rather than a creator-created phenomenon. Today's temple is the movie theater. Society's chapel is an art museum, perhaps a concert venue. You go to listen to your favorite music. Secular people don't want God to be in the world, so they create a world or worlds that they can control, that they can in fact be God themselves. Yet human beings so desperately want to believe in something, something eternal, something transcendent, something beyond us. A belief in something is always luring us. It's, it's pulling and it's tugging at our hearts. We might not even, even know it. And so we turn to art forms. We turn to music because it moves us. We turn to art because it captures our minds and our hearts. We tattoo our bodies because we are captivated by images. Symbols mean something, especially to my generation, maybe even younger. There's, there's certain things in this world that words just cannot explain, and, and so we use symbols that drive us and motivate us. We, can, we decontextualize everything that has a religious origin, and we recontextualize it now simply as art. And why not? Art, unlike God, has extraordinary benefits to tug and to pull on our hearts. Art is more convenient than God. Art will never demand that you do something with your life or you live in a certain way. Art, never, art is, is more convenient than God. With art, you simply enjoy its beauty. When you want to escape and, and take it in, you can do that. When you're ready to walk away, you can also do that. In our day, the, the mature, the educated, and the sophisticated have done away with God. They don't need God anymore. They don't need faith anymore. We're a culture that's grown past God. We've faced reality. We realize that the world is a pretty cold and dark place. We turn to art for courage, for inspiration to, take, to wake up tomorrow morning. Or perhaps we turn to art out of hopelessness. We don't want to live till tomorrow morning. But we could, there could be something else that's happening in our heart. What if art, what if music, what if these great pieces of art 
are simply signposts pointing us to something that's beyond this world, certainly beyond ourselves. What if the reason it grips our heart is because there's something behind it or someone behind it, an ultimate artist who's painted a landscape not only over our hearts and our lives, but over all human and redemptive history? What if there is a transcendent God behind every canvas of life? People turning away from God because of of one experience of suffering has caused them to fail to see a a masterpiece that God might be painting and and drawing on all of our lives. What if there's no such thing as as fate? What if the Bible has no category for chance or, or even luck? What if karma is a story told by those who are longing for something deeper, grander, beyond us? Everything really comes together tightly for Christians and in Scripture under a category and under a topic concerning the character of God called the providence of God. How many of you guys ever heard a a sermon on the providence of God? Just raise your hand. Not too many. Maybe maybe a quarter of you are familiar with the topic. Uh, We don't talk too much about the providence of God, but Ruth is through and through full of it. In Ruth 119 through 223 this morning, I want to give you an example of a person who, much like a modern person, has basically given up on God. They've had bad experiences through life, and, and just like many today, Naomi just wanted to walk away from a conception of a good God. Her experience and her reality told her something different. She wanted a God who was sovereign. She experienced suffering. She wanted a God who was a God of life, but all she experienced was death. And she's about to give up on her ideas of God and, and in fact, probably turn to something else until she sees clearly the concept of the providence of God working the whole time in her life, through the good times and through the bad times, through the tragedies, but also through the joys. Ruth is a a story about redemption, goodness, and ultimately about the providence of God. And I want to show you what that looks like this morning. Number one, God's providence, there's a, another religious uh, work of art there. God's providence is a matter of faith more than experience. God's providence is a matter of faith more than experience. Look down at your text at, at verse 19. I'll read through the end of the chapter here. Ruth 1, verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And we're picking up this scene as Ruth and Naomi are traveling back on the road to Bethlehem. And remember what we talked about last week, there was nothing but tragedy, death, darkness, and hopelessness as this story opens up in Ruth chapter 1. In Moab, these women experienced the worst kind of tragedy. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. Ruth's husband died. They have nowhere to go. 
no one to turn to, and no one to provide for them. They are all very hopeless, helpless, and heartbroken. And when she returns to the women of Bethlehem, they're either joyful to see Naomi, or they're completely shocked. Naomi, however, is, is clearly bitter, and she is disillusioned. Naomi is not the same person she was when she left Bethlehem ten years ago. She demands a different name. No longer does she want to be called Naomi, which means pleasant, but she wants to be called Mara in Hebrew, which means bitter. And notice how she references God two times in verses 20 and 21. Look down at your text. So she's text so she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And this is a, this is a very unique word. The only times you're going to read about it in the book of Ruth. The Hebrew here is Shaddai. Y'all remember the old, old song? Amos, singing it in your head. I know you're singing it. El Shaddai, El Shaddai. Remember that one? Scholars debate what Shaddai means. At its root in Hebrew is probably the closest we can trace it to is mountain, meaning that God is the one of the mountains, or the one who perhaps reigns and rules from the mountaintop. The designation is used in Genesis, where God appears as a source of life, but most prominently, Almighty occurs in the book of Job exactly 31 times. Job and his friends believe that Shaddai is the sovereign king of the world, the source of life a dispenser of justice, not only to Job, but to all of his friends as well. It's very ironic that Naomi uses this word to describe God, a giver of life, of justice. Is, is she mocking him? All she's experienced is death. Is she challenging God? All she's experienced is injustice, maybe becoming a victim suffering in her circumstances. Her conclusion is that God had caused her to suffer. Verse 21, God has testified against me, had opposed her as if she was in a court of law, and she stood against God. She's deceived, leaving, living completely in an imminent frame. She can't see past her present circumstances. Any of you guys uh, raised children before and know the joys of asking them to keep their room clean on a daily basis. I've got a little girl, and if she wasn't so cute, I'd, I'd probably strangle her most days of the week. This girl is the messiest girl that you'll ever imagine. Uh, if, if we get her to clean her room in the beginning of the day, by lunchtime, it is just a mess. There's stuff thrown everywhere. There's pillows, there's clothes. You go into her closet, and she's got a little... Uh, little chest of drawers for a little plastic thing where she keeps all of her socks and everything. Every drawer is opened. There's stuff like draped over the side of the, of the drawers. We're just like, please clean something. Just pretend like you live here and it's not a complete, complete pigsty. One, one day, I'll never forget recently, I'm a, I, I have such an OCD problem that I call it CDO so that it's in alphabetical order. And I'm always harping on my kids, just clean something. I don't care what it is, just clean something. It can be put away or, or whatever. I come home from work one day, and Kennedy comes up to me beaming, so happy, so joyful. 
Daddy, I want you to show you. So I want to show you something. She grabs my hand, and of course, I'm just a, I'm a sucker. She knows that she's got me wrapped around her finger. Walks me into her room, and it is absolutely spotless. It was it was perfect. The bed was made. The clothes were folded. The floor was vacuumed. I thought I was living in the twilight zone. Like, is this really happening? Sin convinced Naomi that she was living in a twilight zone. It was causing her to deny, suppress, and and minimize the truth, but assert, adorn, and elevate what is false. In sin, Naomi was putting a move on herself, pulling the wool over her own eyes. She's being swindled because sin is the best self-swindler there is. It's self-deceiving convincing her that she's not deceived after she has become deceived. Of all the things that sin does to our hearts, perhaps the worst is that sin is self-deceiving. I want you to look down at verse 21 and, and read this statement that comes from the heart of Naomi. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Is that true? What did Naomi come back with? She came back with Ruth. Were her hands truly empty? What did she come back to? She came back to her hometown. She came back to her family. She came back to what will be her kinsman redeemer. Keller's got a great thought about um, suffering, something that Naomi could have taken to heart. He says this, just because we can't see a reason for suffering doesn't mean that there isn't one. Sometimes God plans and orchestrates tragedies and difficulties in life as he's painting a masterpiece over our heart and soul, causing us to know him and depend upon him in ways that we haven't known him before. Naomi was on ground level, and she needed a 30,000-foot view of her life and of her circumstances. Her theology was saturated with understanding seeking faith, and she got that backwards. It should have been faith seeking understanding. And she failed to learn one of the most important truths of all of Christian life. Very simple truth. Foundational truth. God is God, and we are not. We aren't in control. Everything we are, everything we have, is totally dependent upon him. Every breath we take, every step we take is by the gracious and merciful hand of God. Providence is a a matter of faith, not experience. And if you look at your circumstances and your experiences in life, you will never come to fully appreciate the rich and lofty concept of the providence of God. And that's what Naomi needed the most in this text. Number two, providence is a matter of faith more than experience. God's providence is personable, not questionable. God's providence is personal, not questionable. Our English word providence comes from a Latin word. It means to see beforehand. When applied to God, providence means that he sees all things and guides them for his glory and our good, and ultimately to his purposes. God's providence means that he sees all things and guides them for his glory and our good, and for his ultimate purpose. Providence of God is tied not only to his creation, but also to his preservation of his creation. 
Not only is God creator, but he is also sustainer with a purpose for all things that happen for his redemptive history. If you want a definition of this theological topic of the providence of God, you won't find one that's better than this. God has willed his good and creatures from eternity and will bring it to pass despite their rebellion by so ordering all things toward his goodness that even evil which he does not cause becomes an occasion for the operation of grace. In chapter 2, you're going to see the providence of God extremely clear, and it happens in these first four verses. Uh, Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, And she just happened to come to, if you have a highlighter and you underline or highlight phrases in your Bible, she just happened to come to. The part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, if you have a highlighter or you underline in your Bible, that word behold is very significant in Hebrew. Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you, and they answered, the Lord bless you. Ruth provides us with one of the richest words pointing to the providence of God. It's actually, it's one Hebrew verb. She just happened to come to. It's followed by the next richest word in the providence of God, behold, and that should just grab your attention. Something as significant as happening in the story that that distracts you, that takes you away from everything else and focuses your attention on what's about to happen next in the context of Ruth chapter 2. Providence tells us nothing happens by chance or by luck. All things are orchestrated by the hand of God. If he hasn't caused them, he allows them to happen. And so we trust that he is sovereign. He is leading us in a path of life that is for our good and ultimately for his glory. Millard Erickson's theology has got one of the strongest statements about the providence of God. He says, providence means that we are able to live in the assurance that God is present and active in our lives. We are in his care, and therefore we can face the future confidently. If you have a strong and robust theology in the providence of God, you can face all of life's circumstances with confidence, whether it's viruses, whether it's situations that happen in our nation, whether it's situations that are happening in your family. God is providential. He is sovereign. None of this has caught him off guard. Nothing happens by a surprise to God. He knows about it. He oversees it. Providence reminds us that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father's care. Jesus says, all the hairs of our head have been numbered, and for some of us that might not seem like too difficult of a task for God. For others, it's a little bit more difficult. God is is concerned not only about the big things in our life, he's also concerned about the very small things, the things that we take for granted because he is a providential God. And for Ruth and Naomi, the providence of God was very direct and it was personal. And it came into their life at the right moment, right when they needed it, according to God's design and plan. Look down at verse 5 in your text. Then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? 
The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Verse 8, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Remember, uh, this, is at a te- this is either written when David is king, and his greatest enemies were the Moabites. David spent the majority of the, the first part of his, his reign over Israel, killing and defeating his, the Moabites. Here along comes Ruth, taken care of as a foreigner in Israel by Boaz. Or, it's written during the post-exilic time when Nehemiah and Ezra come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And they were so concerned about marrying foreign wives, Nehemiah stands up and he calls out the Israelites as are godless pagans marrying foreign wives. Aren't there enough women for you from among your own people? And again, here this Moabite woman finds favor in the eyes of Boaz. Her question is right on, tar- on target, right on point for this text. Verse 11, Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord will repay you for what you have done, and a full reward will be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my, my Lord. For you have comforted me and you have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, verse 14, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel into the wine. And and so she sat beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Boaz, as the future kinsman redeemer, does many things that are akin to our redeemer through Jesus Christ. He notices Ruth. He notices the unnoticeable. He protects her with a wing of protection, caring for her as a, as a mother hen cares for her chicks. You probably read something like that in the Gospel of Matthew. Boaz speaks kindly to her when she probably didn't deserve to be spoke kindly to, and she certainly didn't deserve to reap from the fields. And he provides for her. This is just the beginning of of the redemptive providential hand of God that is coming through the work of the kinsman redeemer, Boaz. Number one in your outline. Providence is a matter of faith more than experience. Number two, God's providence is personal, not questionable. Number three, God's providence leads to contentment, not disappointment. God's providence leads to contentment, not disappointment. Look at verse 17. Large swaths of text this morning. Lots of theology, hopefully, so bear with me. So she gleaned in the field until evening, 
Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up, and she went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she brought out, and she gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Boaz in in Hebrew means strength or dignity. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with with the young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. And so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Ruth gleans an ephah, of barley. It's equivalent to a liquid measure that we would know as a bath. Archaeologists believe that this measure is about six gallons, approximately six gallons. And if you weigh that out in barley, it's going to come to about 30, 29, or 30 pounds. A daily ration of food at that time would have been one liter. Ruth gleaned enough for one week of food for her and Naomi. Harvest lasted exactly two months in Israel, so each day if she gleaned the same amount that she gleaned this day and this week, she would have enough barley that would last her either for two-thirds of the year or the entire year, depending on how you calculate that, the measurements that you use. We see the generosity of Boaz and his care for Ruth and Naomi through this text, providing not only for what they need, but even over an abundance of what they need. The term that aptly describes the situation is that they had They ate and they were satisfied. They gleaned and they had some left over because they were entirely satisfied. Even in verse 18, you'll see that. This is an amazing text that it just so happens under the providence of God that Ruth comes back to Bethlehem and she happens to be in the field of Boaz during the barley harvest. It just so happens that Boaz is coming back to visit the harvest and to check on his workers. Some of us would look at this text and some of us would conclude that this is just karma. Maybe Naomi, maybe Ruth did something deserving of the favor that they had received. Other people look at this text and realize that there's something much deeper going on. God is providentially orchestrating every step of their journey. He is painting a canvas, a great work of art. Naomi was so close to the canvas when she complains and became embittered about God, all all she could see were the colors. If she simply would have stepped back, she could have seen the intricate design that the Lord God was painting on her life and on her heart and on her soul. That her story wasn't finished because of her time in, in Moab, but it would be redeemed and made beautiful because of her time in Bethlehem. I want to talk just, just briefly and um, end with some thoughts about the providence of God. And think about the theology of providence. Providence helps us to adopt a mentality of of victor over victim. If you take anything away from this text, and especially in our culture, a strong and robust theology of the providence of God will help you adopt the mentality of victor 
over victim. You won't see life in light of your hard and tragic circumstances. Instead, you'll see life and your tragedies and your down points in light of the providence and the sovereignty of God. You won't ask, how am I being taken advantage of or why is this happening to me as much as you'll be asking, how is the Lord going to redeem this? How is this work of art going to be made beautiful in God's time? How are these ashes going to be made beautiful in the sight of God? When Naomi came back to Bethlehem, she bought into the lie that she was a victim. She was a victim of God's displeasure, the victim of the Almighty's wrath. She thought that God was clearly out to get her. Uh, Dave Sargent and I were talking this week just in the, in the office. He stopped by and talking about the providence of God. And he mentioned the theology that comes from the Belgic Confession. I want to read just some of these words. They'll be on the screen behind me. Belgic Confession says this about the providence of God. Some of the greatest theology that you'll read. We believe that this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement of it. Yet God is not the author of and cannot be charged with the sin that occurs, for God's power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that God arranges and does his work very well and justly, even when the devil and the wicked act unjustly. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what God does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility, and with reverence, we adore the just judgments of God which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples, so as to learn only what God shows us in the word without going beyond those limits. A strong theology in the providence of God comes with humility, the ability to embrace all of life's circumstances, knowing that there are some things in life we will never completely figure out on this side of glory. There are some things that we give over to God and we trust that he is working even when everything else convinces us that he isn't or maybe that he's absent. The providence of God grounds you to overcome suffering in all kinds of circumstances that you will experience in a fallen and a chaotic world. The Belgic Confession goes on to say this. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father who watches over us with fatherly care. There's another great work of uh, literature that's done by Matthew Henry, one of the Puritan commentaries. He wrote a discourse on meekness and quietness of spirit. And he says a few things about, about the providence of God. <clears throat> He says that there is meekness toward God and it is the easy and quiet submission to the soul for his whole will according as he is pleased to make it known whether by word or by his providence. If you want to grow in meekness to God, turn to his word and look for his providence in all aspects of life. Matthew Henry says it's the silent submission of the soul to the word of God the understanding bowed to every divine truth and the will of every divine precept, and both without murmuring or arguing. 
when we trust in the providence of God. He goes on to say that when the events of providence are grievous and afflicting, displeasing to sense and opposing our worldly interests, meekness not only quiets us under them, but reconciles us to them and enables us not only to bear, but to receive evil as well as good at the hand of the Lord. God uses all situations in life for our good and for his glory. We might never know how he's going to work those things out, but we can always trust because of his word that he is working in that way. I want to end with, with one passage in Romans chapter 8. I want you to, uh, you, to, you can leave your place in Ruth and just flip over to Romans 8 as we close. I have a few quick announcements um, before we finish this morning. Romans 8, skip down to verse 28. Providence of God is one of those concepts and topics that you you really don't have to preach about. You can just read about it. Read the passages of Scripture. Let them sink in. Verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against the elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? All of those are descriptions of covenant curse in the Bible. The depiction that we have of Jesus dying for us on the cross is that he took the curse upon himself. He experienced covenant curse so that we could experience covenant blessing. That under the providence of God, no, nothing would be able to stand against us There is no charge, there is nothing that can be said against those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing left, there's no one left to condemn us. God has judged, he has judged sin, he has condemned it. He has judged it through his son Jesus, and he's given us life instead. Verse 36 is written, For your sake we are all being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I don't know what's ahead for us in 2021. If the rest of the year is anything like the beginning, probably a whole lot more chaos. I don't know what's in store for you and your family. I don't know what's in store for me and my family. But I do know this. 
God is providentially sovereign over all of it. And because he is sovereign, we can trust him. And if he didn't spare his son to show us the love that he has for us, there is no other extent that he will fail to go to to keep us preserved and protected under his providence and sovereign care. Not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from the Father knowing about it. The, hair, the hairs of your head are all numbered under his providential care. And if that's true, then we can trust him. No matter what happens to us in life, we can trust him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for uh, the story of those who are changed by the providential care and the sovereignty that you and you alone have. God, you are great. You are omnipotent. You are omnipresent. You are in control of all things. You are God and we are not. As we leave this room, if we don't take anything else with us, Help us to embrace a very basic and foundational theology. You are sovereign. You are in control. None of us are. You created us to be dependent on you. Help us to forsake our independence and our autonomy and trust you more and more as we see the day drawing near. We thank you for your redemption. We thank you for your providence. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray this morning. Amen.